Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside the box capital raising. This is Capital Insight. Hello, this is Jenny Casson. Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. I'm here with Michelle Timish and our amazing guest, Angela Barbash, who is a real pioneer in the world of creative regenerative investing. So Angela, tell us about yourself, how you got into the work you do, what you're doing now. Give us some examples of the kinds of things you're working on and we'll go from there. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate getting to chat with the two of you and uh, hopefully this conversation will be uh, enlightening or enlivening for those that are listening. So I am an investment advisor and that means that I provide financial planning and investment management guidance for investors. And I serve and the the team that I work with here at Revalue, which is the name of our firm in Michigan, we serve uh, investors that are, you know, just saving their first few dollars all the way up to those that have maybe built businesses and have wealth from that, or they've inherited wealth from prior generations who have built, built businesses. And we also serve investors who want to 100% divest off of Wall Street and into community investments, all the way to people that have not even really heard of it or don't know much about it until they come to us. And so we work all along the spectrum of education and awareness and wealth and income. And I've been an advisor now for gosh, um, as of this podcast recording, 17 years. And I got started in a a kind of an untraditional way through my apprenticeship with someone who was very, a mentor who was very skeptical of the status quo and the, and uh, the global financial markets to begin with. And so I had that embedded in me in my very early days, but then I went on to spend about five years in the the quote-unquote traditional side of the industry uh, where most of the investments that our clients were going into were mutual funds or stocks. And we never talked about things that were outside of Wall Street uh, or questioned. None of my colleagues questioned the values that were being expressed through those investments. Although I still did do ESG mutual funds, um, the best that I could get at that time. And then I came back, I came out of that traditional uh, uh, role and I went back to the people that I had apprenticed with after the 08 crash. And, um, and it was really in the aftermath of that, that I think a lot of people, uh, maybe, you know, those listening included really started to question everything. And, Uh, So I had investors that I was working with who were saying, you know, if I'm going to lose half of my money, uh, I'd rather lose it with the coffee shop down the street if it had to be that way than for it to just disappear overnight in the global system. And I don't even understand what happened and uh, sentiments like that. And and I'll, I'll 
lot more, you know, the conversations around those kinds of things that were quote unquote, not traditional to the finance industry. And I started to try to find answers and I really couldn't until I stumbled upon the slow money movement. That was my entry point. And then um, I found that no one was really talking about that, uh, bringing, you know, slowing down the pace of money and bringing it back to a collection, a, a connection to land let alone other, you know, small businesses, other main street um, endeavors. Nobody was really talking about that in Michigan. So I vowed to make it a conversation in Michigan. And that was in 2011, 2012. And we launched Revalue in 2013 to exclusively do this work. Wow. That's incredible. I feel like you were really fortunate that you had such a powerful mentor in, in this space. That's, that's great. I actually didn't know that about you. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of education and awareness, what, what does that conversation look like today? And how does it differ from even just a couple of years ago when you're talking to clients? Mm, yeah. So I think, you know, five years ago, uh, it was a very difficult conversation um, because investors might have been familiar with the concept of small businesses, and maybe they had somebody in their family that had a business, but their impression was that they were extremely high risk and very high um, high likelihood of failure. And uh, there wasn't a lot of faith or trust in the small business community, I think, and, um, and in the power of small business. And There wasn't a lot of education available for advisors, the professionals that were wanting to service this conversation with their clients and also for investors. And so I think what has changed today is that I think there is a lot more faith in small businesses and not even just faith in small businesses, but a real core belief that and and understanding that they are the underpinning of economies. That, that every single town, every single county in Michigan uh, and other states have got counties, every state, the underpinning of their economy is small business. And I think many more people understand that today, uh, even, even after having seen businesses, um, unfortunately, have to close during COVID. So I think there's a lot more, more trust that then leads to more education and awareness. And so, you know, for us, we're kind of in, we're in a little bit of a bubble now, I think at Revalue, because everyone that comes to us um, generally comes because they want to be values driven. And they're aware that we are experts in um, cow, in uh, community investing. And, uh, and so we, we often don't actually run into people that are not so aware of it anymore. Um, but I think that's just a, mat- a matter of having built the field we wanted to service over the last five to 10 years. Wow. Good for you. It's so great when you get to deal with people who already get it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know, our understanding, having talked to a lot of investment advisors over the years, the industry itself, how it's regulated, what, you know, what the standard practices are, what the infrastructure is, can make it hard to do what you're doing. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you, what are the barriers in the industry that you're practicing in to doing what you're doing and and how are you overcoming those? Oh yeah, that's a great question. And I think I'm going to have even more insight on this once we go through our next audit. Uh, We've been audited once by the state of Michigan since we started, and this was you know, almost four years ago. 
And I remember going through that audit really nervous about whether our compliance protocols were good enough, knowing that we were doing what the regulators have essentially said is inappropriate and, you know, not so many in in like more words than that, um, by helping non-accredited investors invest locally for, you know, decades, they felt that was pretty inappropriate. And so I knew we were flying in the face of them. And, um, and so I remember going through that first audit, really nervous But the auditor said something really amazing to us at the end of that week. They said, you know, this is the first time we've ever encountered a business like this in in all all of our department's recollection. And if ever a business was to attempt to do what you all are trying to do, you've done it the way we, we would hope you would do it. And so since then, we've we've stepped it up even more to try to protect investors, educate them, protect ourselves, you know, try to acknowledge the concerns that regulators have. And so it'll be curious to go, (laughs) I'm interested in what's going to happen when we go through our next audit, which I would expect to be sometime in the next year or so. Um, But I think the big structural problems uh, that are, they're really philosophical at their core is the, the distinction between who can invest and who cannot invest. So that accredited and non-accredited line in the sand that gets drawn. um, I think it's a farce. I I don't, I don't think stripping people of their agency to invest is a wise thing to do. I think if anything, we should turn all of that money that we as a country pour into uh, the attention we put on that accreditation line. We should pour that into education, investor education at starting at the primary level for children. Um, so I think that's a, a fundamental flaw of the system. I also uh, see that then descending down into the fiduciary duty and the interpretation of the fiduciary duty. So if the SEC or other state regulators fundamentally believe that investing in private assets is the highest risk thing that could happen, then they're imposing their their philosophical viewpoint on us as advisors by interpreting our fiduciary duty for us instead of what it should be, which is always acting in the client's best interest. That's what we're told. But the regulators are essentially telling us what is in the client's best interest instead of leaving it to us and our clients to determine what's in the client's best interest. And that is, uh, I think those two things right there are fundamental stripping of, of individual rights and agency. Wow. That's really powerful. I, I, and I love that because a lot of people don't talk about that side of it, which is very real. The regulators, they, they see the, they see this as a, as a left turn as something very foreign It makes them extremely uncomfortable and they're the first to admit it. So kudos to you for being the gold standard. <laughs> That's really amazing. my rebel at heart. <laughs> I love it, but but a rebel who can convince regulators like that's, <laughs> that's something. Um, I'm wondering what you, um, this is really, this is so empowering for both your clients and I'm sure for your firm to go through this process and be validated in that way. What do you think does need to happen? I love your idea about pouring some of that money into education that we do not do in this country. What do you think is a, a sort of um, a next best step for those who are in, interested in economic development 
and want to explore this possibility, what do you think is a good first next step for people who are curious about taking charge of uh, making sure that their money is aligned with their values and enhancing the work in their community that is pretty siloed for the most part? Mm. Man, that's a great question and a, a multi-layered cake of answers. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I, I think it depends on where a person is in their life, what stage of life of, of their life they're in and what their inclinations are. I would say the easiest thing actually, I think is to buddy up with someone is to find someone in your friend network or your professional network that is also leaning into community economic development and the implications of all of the great things happening in that space for them and their portfolio. I think when um, like reading about it online or going to workshops or consuming curriculum can be very informative, but what I find to be the biggest barrier is fear. And one of the best ways to overcome fear I've found is to work together with other people to build up your confidence and courage. And so I think if there is a small group in your town that is, uh, is talking about, you know, these things, maybe it's a slow money chapter, maybe it's an investor circle. It's, it's, um, you know, some kind of, uh, formal or informal group like that, or if you have a friend, or coming to the the great networks that uh, you all have created, or um, Marco Vangelisti has created, or we have created, or Zebras Unite. There's a lot of great networks. Invest for Better is another one. Um, I think uh, buddying up with someone to to start to tackle that fear is the big piece, and then the education, the information will come bit by bit as you encounter the challenge. And I've seen, you know, myself included investors that have done this for a decade, two decades or longer, uh, in, still encounter challenges. And so as you encounter those challenges, then you'll, um, over time, you'll build up the kind of go-to people or networks that you can go ping them for that answer of like, hey, I ran into this thing. What do I do? I find that that kind of just-in-time delivery of, of education is uh, often more effective for people. And then I'm going to give one more plug for an avenue. Uh, and, and that is my, my core belief that people that have studied the humanities and um, social workers, I myself am an anthropologist. Um, I think uh, those folks are the next generation of financial advisors. And so if you are in those educational tracks in your university uh, know that they're that I believe and I think a lot of other people like me believe in the industry that you're the future of our industry um, because economics is a behavioral science and what we did was effectively remove the hum- human part of this behavioral science for the last 80 years and and there is a resurgence in bringing, all of that back, clinical therapy, all of that needs to come back into finance. Oh, I absolutely love that. It's so true. I think so many people think like, oh, I have to be kind of this tough man (laughs) to go into (laughs) finance. And we really need a more diverse skill set in the world of finance. Mm -hmm. Um, So getting into more kind of practical stuff, um, 
you know, if you are your typical investment advisor, you know, it's, it's not that hard to find stuff to recommend to your clients because you can go to some, you know, Bloomberg database, you know, I don't know myself exactly how it works, but I know there's kind of like all these mutual funds and you can kind of plug in some stuff and it'll spit out like, here's the recommendation, but you're helping your clients invest in things that aren't as easy to find <laughs> mm-hmm. and are more customized to what they're interested in. So how do you help your clients find what to invest in that's going to get them really excited? Hmm. Yeah. So uh, most of our investment uh, ideas come from referrals or from research requests from our clients. Uh, So there's, uh, I I think like the more circles you run in, the more you realize that there's like darlings of the community investing world. (laughs) So there's like this short list of about 30 investments that everyone who has been doing this for a long time has encountered already or has uh, cleared, it's cleared their due diligence. So there's that short list. And if you're uh, a peer and you want to know where you can get visibility on that short list, I can point you in some directions. Just, you know, contact me afterwards. Um, but there's uh, the, the rest of the things then come from referrals from other colleagues and peers such as yourselves or platforms that we might be following, uh, referrals directly from those platforms. And then uh, research requests, we have a process at Revalue where all of our clients have the ability to submit a research request for the thing that is something that they're interested in. It might be something happening in their own backyard. And um, we, you know, we've got a screening process for that. And then we have our clients vote now. Uh, We just started this this past month uh, that on a monthly basis, our clients vote up what they want to be researched because our pipeline was getting so deep that we we really felt like it was time for us to no longer like um, have a paternalistic controlling hand on that pipeline. (laughs) So now it's in our clients' hands. Yeah. That's fantastic. You mentioned something earlier when you were talking about fear being the basis of that paralysis, right? And and that's common on both sides, actually. We see that on the on the entrepreneur side, and we see that on the especially new or new to impact investing side of things. What would you say to an entrepreneur who is just realizing that there are other ways to raise capital, not just the traditional venture capital route. And there is a lot of terror on the part of these people when they think about the idea of talking to a potential investor. Is there anything that you've learned in, in, in focusing on the other side of it, the investor side of it, that leads you to being able to give some advice to people who are seeking capital and how to address the fears they have about talking to investors? Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, there's really only two ways to grow a business, right? You can grow it organically or you can grow it with outside capital. And or by organically, I mean, uh, you grow it bit by bit with the revenues that come in, you retain those revenues and reinvest them into the company to, to take the next leap. And, uh, and that is often what I see businesses doing when they are, they are crippled with fear, 
but not that can't be that's not the only reason they might choose that route but that is the default if they um choose to if they allow that fear to overtake them and they don't cross the the bridge to talk to outside capital and i would say uh the first thing really from my perspective is crossing the bridge to talk to outside capital is just that it's crossing the bridge to talk to outside capital. It's like going to the bank to talk to the banker. You know, you can within the realms of of the controls of regulations and you know whether you can talk about a potential offering gathering interest there's all that like testing the waters thing you know so make sure you've got good legal counsel which hopefully if you're a small business you do have a good attorney anyway um but make sure you understand what testing the waters means but in having a conversation with potential investors is is a pretty low risk way to start because you you don't have to sign yourself up to work with those investors, just like you don't have to sign the documents at the bank to take the bank loan, but you can at least scout your options. You can feel out the conversations and see what it actually feels like. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs from what I've discovered, they think that if they open the conversation, they have to conclude it with, with taking on that capital. Like they have to take it home, you know? And I, I really just encourage them to allow themselves to have exploratory conversations and be very clear about what it is that they need and what they want and what they don't want in a partner. Um, I think that clarity and that open communication uh, right from the start from both parties is so critically important so that um, you can resolve conflicts later on or differences of opinions. Or, uh, you know, I encourage entrepreneurs to be very clear about what their boundaries are you know, that they don't, you know, let the investors know that, that they're not going to have a say on your branding or your, or your marketing campaigns or, you know, whatever, whatever your boundaries are, communicate those often and early. Yes. That's exactly what we preach. <laughs> so, um, for, for entrepreneurs who, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have an image of what an investor is like. Um, and that, you know, it comes from that, the, that way of investing that we call like the venture capital model or the Silicon Valley model, where you kind of picture this very intimidating man who's like, you know, barraging you with questions and, <laughs> and, you know, all they really care about is 10 xing their money in five to seven years at a minimum. And that's, you know, anything else is kind of a cherry on top and is not really their concern. But you work with investors that are very different from that. So, and one of the reasons we do this podcast is to make it, to spread the word that there is so much diversity in the world of both entrepreneurs and investors. So what would you say to, what have you learned about what quote unquote investors are looking for? Which of course you can't even generalize because every investor is different, but what has surprised you about you know, what your clients are looking for and what, what's important to them when investing. Oh yeah. I, I love to, to try my best to represent the spectrum of investors that are out there um, because they are, they're often, you know, just as afraid as the entrepreneurs to like raise their hand and say, I might have capital, you know? So we, we try to, to rep for them when we can. Um, so I, I like to share that investors, at least the ones that we've had the privilege of working with, which we have over a hundred clients in our, our community now, and we've worked with a, a couple hundred more over the years. 
um, they generally fall into one of two camps. Uh, camp number one is that they are open to community investments. They're cautious about losing their money. So they're going to step their toes uh, bit by bit into the water. So they might do um, no more than 5% of their portfolio, 10% of their portfolio, they would consider to be high risk. And they, uh, they're not after returns alone, because if they were, they would conceivably just stay in the public markets where they know they have liquidity. And so uh, they're, they're interested in having a positive impact and in removing some of their money from, from places where they don't have as much clarity about what's happening with their money and putting it into Main Street where they can actually touch and feel and support the business that has the money. Um, but they they also f- feel like they can't take um, very high risk on that. Uh, they, you know, they can't lose it entirely, and they can't make you know zero percent on it. So those are are more like market rate type of investors. So they're looking for maybe like five percent. They're like that would be great, you know, <laughs> even on an equity deal that would be great. Um, on a debt deal, maybe like three percent would be great. So they're looking for at least equivalent to market returns. And they're going to be more likely to invest in businesses that have been around a long time, that have a track record of performance and a strong customer base. And, you know, they're just like doing an expansion or something like that, or retiring old debt, that's higher cost. So that's one camp. And then we've got the other camp, which are the Generate like regenerative investors that are more inclined to be dedicated to divestment off of Wall Street. And they are uh, just simply trying to find the line between like how low of a return can they take basically and, and still be able to achieve at least some of their goals. And their goals tend to be very modest. So they live very humbly. They have very low expenses. They tend to have Um, inherited wealth or high incomes, and they don't want the wealth. And so they are redistributing the wealth through charitable giving, or they're taking below market returns on the investments. And so they might be willing to do a loan at one or 2%, and they might be happy to, you know, defer dividends on an equity deal for five years or something. And then like, maybe they, you know, get, get their, their principal back with a, a little, like, you know, 1.2, their original investment or something like that um, at the end. So they're much more patient. They're much more willing to take a risk on entrepreneurs because from their perspective, they're like, look, if the entrepreneur couldn't pay me back, they had to have had a good reason for that. And then I just write it off, right? It's not a charitable gift because it didn't go to a charitable organization, but I write it off as a redistribution. So they don't, that doesn't really bother them the risk so much. The only thing they have to watch is, can I still, you know, not eat cat food when I'm 95? Like that's the thing that they're watching for. And, um, and beyond that, it's the gravy is, is from their perspective, not at all appropriate for them to retain. They want that in other people's hands. So those are the two kind of profiles we tend to run into. Yeah. You said something that I want to go back to when you were talking about the first type, you were talking about market rate returns of, um, you know, between like three and 5%. Can you talk a little bit more about market rate returns? We run into people all the time who have, 
these really outsized expectations about what a market rate return is. And I'm just wondering if you could dispel the myth a little bit about what really is a market rate return. Yeah, absolutely. We ask in our intake of new clients what their return expectations are. And um, we, we make them put a number into that field. And then um, in this in a form that we have them submit, and then we tell them what historical market rate returns were, and then ask them if they think that their answer previously was reasonable or not. Uh, and so the, the, what I like to share with people is that um, inflation adjusted historical S&P 500 uh, returns is five and a half percent. So even if you, um, when I say inflation adjusted, that means you have to account for the fact that, that the increased circulation, increased availability of money in the system is pushing those returns high. And so often the S&P 500 gets quoted at like eight and a half percent, or you could expect 8% or 9% or seven and a half percent, but that includes just inflation. So you have to take inflation out of the equation and look at real returns. Um, but even if you put inflation back into that equation, you're still only talking about seven to eight and a half percent where the industry got off trying to convince people that they could get eight to 12 percent. That's that should have been a crime. I mean, it was that's terrible. Like people really they really counted on those kinds of returns. And uh, and that is not at all realistic. And what we've seen in the last three years, or really the last like five years in the markets is bananas. But to expect that that's going to continue forever is just not at all, not at all realistic. So I tell people five and a half percent, right? And and if you're trying to do like market adjusted returns in private markets, like I'm taking higher risk, so therefore I should get higher returns. Maybe some investors then are looking for seven or eight percent in private markets, but not our investors very often. It's pretty rare. Wow. Thank you so much. That was the clearest I've ever heard that explained. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. you. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up any tips you'd like to share for entrepreneurs or investors to get more involved in the world of out, you know, non wall street community-based investing, whether on the recipient or uh, funder side. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So one is a resource that I'd like to share. It's localinvesting.com. It's the Local Investing Resource Center. And the website is run by the National Coalition for Community Capital. And uh, we wrote the content on there for the advisor section. But if you're a DIY investor, you're essentially serving as your own advisor. And we wrote that content for uh, those DIYers and those other advisors who would like to know more about how to incorporate this into their practice. And so we've got a ton of resources there. It's all open source. There's also pages for business owners, for investors, and for um, ecosystem developers. So localinvesting.com is a great website. The National Coalition for Community Capital is a great organization with a bunch of connections, uh, which is you know, how, you know, folks like us that are on this podcast, uh, we have rallied together over the years. And then um, the other thing I would encourage investors to do is to, if you have an, an advisor already, to really press them for the conversation. And if they're unwilling to have that conversation with you, uh, they're like, they're not even willing to, well, let me give you the spectrum. <laughs> there's, there's condescension 
So if you get a condescending response from your advisor, fire them <laughs> and go find yourself a better advisor. If they're willing to at least help you understand how it could fit into your portfolio, then great. That's a, that's a starting point. And, and if you like that advisor anyway, then stick with that advisor and build from there. Hopefully you'll at least get that and you won't get dismissiveness or condescension. There's really no excuse for that anymore. And there's at least a dozen or more firms around the country like us that are helping investors do this and lots of DIY resources out there. So this is not you know, what the movement was 10 years ago where there was very little help out there. <clears throat> so you can find a better way. Um, nobody deserves a condescending uh, advisor. Um, so yeah, those are a couple more tips I would throw out on the table. Thank you so much. We'll be sure and share those in the show notes. And yeah, we really, really appreciate all your amazing wisdom. Michelle, do you want to add anything? I just love everything that you said, Angela. And I'm just so happy that you came here today and, and, and gave this perspective. I think it's, it's brilliant. I know I got several nuggets that I need to further reflect on. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me today. All right. Thanks for joining Capital Insight Podcast. Do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866-552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at jennycasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Inside podcast is still searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time. <laughs>